0: The CNBC app. Global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected. Stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. This is Box. Let's get into your headlines this Monday morning. China's GDP growing at its weakest pace in a year, weighed down by the energy crisis and supply bottlenecks, but September retail sales topped expectations. The PBOC says the spillover risk from Evergrande can be managed, but admits the country faces challenges from, quote, mismanagement at some of its biggest companies.
1: Crude prices hit multi-year highs amid a demand recovery, and as power generators turn their back on pricey gas and coal, Elsewhere, the BOE's Andrew Bailey warns that rising prices may push the central bank to step in, but the ECB's Christine Lagarde tells the IMF it's transitory.
2: We have no reasons to believe that those supply uh, bottlenecks and disruptions are going to last long enough for inflation to then be fed through second round effects of uh, significance.
0: And in Germany, SPD leader Olaf Scholz takes a major step towards succeeding Angela Merkel as German Chancellor after the Green Party votes to support formal coalition talks with the Social Democrats and Liberals.
3: Let us together, hopefully, in the next few weeks, not only get a possible new traffic light government on track, but let us renew this
2: country.
1: Good morning, everyone. Uh, good morning, Jeff. And, good. Uh, I think it was fascinating last week we saw in markets that there mm. was a little bit of momentum, at least stateside, and I wonder how much of that was down to the earnings. Because mm. we did have a busy old week, didn't we?
0: I think the bank earnings were stellar, yes. weren't they? They were everything that everybody expected them to be. I think the only question really was just valuation. Mm. Have we come too far already? <laughs> did the earnings set us up for another good quarter going forward? Or was that as good as it gets. Yeah,
1: and did the earnings set us up for better numbers in other sectors? Just uh, not necessarily the banks as the sole focus. And I wonder whether we've got piling back into some areas. But I mention earnings because we've got Philips numbers crossing this morning here in Europe. And let's just take a look uh, the company reporting Q3 sales of 4.2 billion euros. Uh, that is a 7.6 comparable sales decline due to headwinds. So again, a company that is looking at the supply chain and facing some problems. Income from continuing operations increased to 442 million euros and adjusted EBITDA margin amounts to 12.3%. So when it comes to uh, some of these numbers, uh, as we just look through the various parts of the business, uh, you can see they say based on strong customer demand and uh, growing order book, they expect to resume their growth and margin expansion trajectory in 2022 as they work through headwinds. So they're looking forward down the line and they still think it looks positive. Uh, they now expect to deliver low single-digit comparable sales growth with a modest uh, adjusted EBITDA margin improvement for the full year of 2021, so a reassessment of those expectations now. And in terms of Q3 operating cash flow, that's at €256 million Euros in the current quarter compared with €575 million in the third quarter of last year. But uh, some of this perhaps also down to the fact that uh, we've got those comparables when you think about uh, people buying. Products, and that was companies as well, a business in the health tech uh, part of the market. So perhaps uh, very challenging numbers to also back up against. Uh, domestic appliances divestment was completed as planned, resulting in a €2.5 billion euro gain after tax, transaction-related costs reported in disc. Continued operations. So, and um, just a fine line on productivity savings amounted to seventy-three million euros.
0: Well, this is a fascinating business because we know Franz Van Houten has been been transitioning this company ultimately to turn it into a health technology business. Here, um, the underlying message we now expect to deliver low single-digit comparable sales growth, with a modest adjustment on EBITDA margin improvement for full year 2021. And the the question, I think, in my mind. Is just the reset in terms of procedures within the, the medical sector. We know that whilst COVID was a health emergency, and for companies that uh, but develop vaccines. You know, it was a call to arms and we saw the response and we've seen those, some of those companies make tremendous profits. Mm. For other businesses that are there providing the equipment that supports surgical procedures and general medical activity, perhaps not so good because we saw as a result of COVID, obviously, a lot of operations were delayed, postponed And that then pushes, obviously, uh, equipment acquisition into the future, Mm -hmm. in a sense here. So, So interesting, the guidance from Philips here, perhaps suggesting that some of the headwinds that they talk about in the earnings announcement are still with us when it comes to getting those... Uh, clinics and hospital operating theatres back to business.
1: Yeah, just a, a final point. This is a stock that a lot of market participants have liked for many years. You saw it remodelled by the, the CEO, the direction it was taking, but also very strong adoption of ESG principles early on. So you would say well-positioned. But in fact, if you look at the stock price, we had the high watermark back in April, and it's well and truly off those levels. Uh, so the market uh, clearly concerned, as you point out, those trends around uh, what it is saying, diagnostics, uh, diagnosis treatment, all of that uh, you'd think would be coming back into the fore at some point. But the stock performance uh, fairly woeful like. for 2021. Uh, last year, slightly more volatile and the stock obviously fell with the broader market, but then recovered strongly and very much demonstrating that, um, you know, it's favourable position that the market has always seen the stock at. Um, But uh, shall we continue the conversation? Franz van Houten joins us now, the CEO of Philips. Franz, thank you very much for joining us. We were just talking about your company a lot and we're just a little bit puzzled by the performance and the reset and expectations. Just walk us through what you are witnessing in the business in the third quarter.
2: Sure, thank you. Um, Well, I see it really as a tale of two stories. Uh, On the one hand, very strong order growth, Uh, 17% in the quarter, Um, 19 new strategic customer partnerships. Uh, It just uh, underlines that the customers actually like our strategy around precision diagnosis, minimally invasive therapies, uh, connecting care, using informatics for telehealth, etc., etc. So all of that is going well. Um, In the first half year, actually, we had 9% growth, right? So that traction underlying is absolutely strong. Now, during the quarter, we were also hit by uh, increasing supply chain challenges. Uh, We saw ports uh, delaying uh, handling of shipments. We saw a shortage of containers. And of course, the e-components made that we could not deliver as much as we could have. In fact, we are sitting on an all-time high order book. um, But, we could not fully realize that. And of course the other headwind that impacted us is the uh, previously announced uh, recall of our sleep uh, systems. There we are laser focused on first reaching out to all the patients and providing them with a repaired or new unit. And as long as we are doing that, we are not selling any devices. So that is the second reason why uh, we saw a, uh, a decline in the quarter.
1: Uh, Franz, you've always been a forward-looking CEO, first with the transformation of this business, the adoption of ESG. As you weigh up the supply chain problems that you're witnessing right now, is it causing you to rethink the entire supply chain or is this just something you need to weather and get through for the time being?
2: Yeah, of course, from geopolitical angle, there's a lot of discussions about uh, being having sovereign autonomy, etc., in every continent, but I'm afraid that is not possible. We are dependent on uh, r- rare materials, on chips and e-components, and the supply chain is global. And I think we are seeing uh, that global supply chain uh, a bit under pressure uh, when there is more demand than uh, the industry can supply. Uh, and our logistical inefficiencies. I think it's a temporary thing, you know, maybe uh, another one or two quarters that uh, this is going to impact us. Uh, Eventually, it will settle. Um, We are rethinking regional uh, manufacturing, uh, that is sure, but it doesn't change your dependence on certain global vendors when it comes to chips. Uh, Of course, we design our products so that we can also switch between vendors to make us less dependent on a single source. Uh,
0: Franz, interesting on the guidance for full year. It does seem very modest, Uh, low single digit. And then I think um, in in terms of uh, margin expansion, also modest from here on in. Uh, do you think ultimately, as we close the book then on the fourth quarter and 2021, um, this won't have been the strong rebound year that you were hoping for maybe 2022 delivers?
2: I think that's a fair comment. Uh, but I'd like to point out that um, we have the impact of the sleep recall, which sets us back around six, seven 700 million uh, in revenue. And then With the supply chain uh, hitting us in Q3 and expectedly in Q4, you know, you see another um, 350 million altogether. So those two factors aside, and actually Philips is growing double digits. Right, so the under and I realize that's not easy for everybody to uh, to look through, right? But the underlying strategy resonates a lot with customers. Seventeen percent order growth, an all-time high order book, and so I am confident that in 2022, Philips will resume that upward trajectory in growth and in profit expansion.
0: Obviously, um, there are some standout numbers here, like the connected care business comparable sales decrease, I mean, a decline of 39%. You've ascribed some of that to the COVID-related spike that you saw in the comparable period, third quarter 2020. Can you tell us a little bit about then how you expect the trajectory of that number to unfold as we start to or hopefully start to see more normalised clinical conditions?
2: Yeah, as we report on comparable sales, of course, you always have that comparison to a previous year. Last year, there was strong COVID-related demand. Actually, some of that still continued in the first half. Um, next year, we expect to be able to deliver a lot around um, connected care, health informatics, uh, out-of-hospital care. We see more and more healthcare providers wanting to reach patients in their community, um, For example, we provide uh, sensors that patients can wear on their body uh, and then remotely uh, can be uh, taken care of by the doctor. Um, This improves people's lives. People can then, in the comfort of their home still continue to function instead of having to go to the hospital. And I think if COVID taught us anything, it is that patients do not always want to go to the hospital uh, for their chronic uh, care needs. So I think the the way Philips is playing into that evolving trend of uh, care anywhere, um, we will see also strong growth in the connected care arena.
1: Friends, can I just pick up on uh, the cost savings at this point? Because uh, clearly some challenges trying to recover some of the earnings. And typically some companies can just look at the, the cost side of the business to extract some savings. You managed to uh, tally up 73 million euros from procurement savings and also from overhead and other programs. But is there anything more you can strip out of the business from here? Or do you think it is a very lean machine at this point?
2: Oh, there's always opportunity to, to drive uh, efficiency and productivity. Um, And as we have communicated to the markets, we aim to increase profitability every year by 60 to 80 basis points. Uh, That's partly driven by a five to 6% growth uh, that we look for uh, and partly driven also by continued productivity enhancements. Uh, We see opportunities uh, uh, around uh, leveraging digital means, uh, process robotics, and, and while we spoke earlier about headwinds on the supply side there, we continue to see opportunities to also drive procurement savings. And so I have confidence that next year we can make another step also on the productivity side.
0: Franz, it's been a pleasure catching up. Best of luck with the quarter and we'll, we'll see you again soon. Uh, Franz van Houten, the Thank CEO you. of Philips. Um, just a quick uh, comment from me on the way out of the interview, obviously just pop the share price up. Um, they're not being rewarded i don't think no. for the work that's going in at the moment um this share price peaked at about 50 euros and it's almost been a one-way trade then for the year-to-date story so th- the stocks are off over nine percent on the year to date here and at the moment it seems to me obviously that there's the issue with this uh, sleep Um, technology that they're now having to um, uh, deal with. Uh, That's a a special situation, effectively. But but it seems to me that there's a a view in the market at the moment that we are still waiting to see whether this strategy delivers the uptick in revenue and growth, particularly on the margin side that I think has long been promised by Franz van Houten.
1: It does beg the question whether the market is in the mood for benefit of the doubt strategy. And I dare say they're not. I mean, you've seen in the auto sector when there's also been supply chain issues, the market has stepped back and they're just waiting to see when it gets resolved at some point. And uh, this is a company that has to resolve its own issues around the recall its only, and broader issues around supply chain. I think the market is just taking a little bit of a cautious approach. And perhaps that just also goes the very strong ascent that we had on the back of those pandemic lows. So at this point, uh, the market is not willing to take that leap of faith, I think, for a lot of companies if they do see lumpiness and the earnings issues ahead.
0: Uh, We're going to move on. Uh, Park Phillips for the moment. Poor old Ginny Yan has been waiting in the wings. We're going to pick up on the China story in just a moment and we'll get her view on the latest data point. Economic growth in the world's second largest economy slowing in the third quarter. What's going on? And are we going to see more uh, weak growth numbers from the Chinese economy or... Will we get some stimulus? We'll pick up the conversation with Ginny M when we come back. China's economic recovery from the pandemic slowed in the third quarter as GDP rose 4.9%. That missed expectations as economic activity grew at its weakest rate in a year. Industrial output for September rose 3.1%. That was below estimates, but consumption boosted the economy as retail sales topped forecasts rising 4.4%. Sam joins us uh, and has been delving into the detail here. So is this same old story, the consumer still holding up here, Sam, while the industrial side of the economy seems to be a little weaker?
4: Good morning to you, Jeff. Well, it was interesting when it came to that trio of economic indicators. As you say, the retail sales front was certainly the outperformer among those sets of data that we did get today, rising 4.4%. And that certainly came as those COVID restrictions were eased. We also saw the services sector doing pretty well in the month of September. So that was largely consistent with that as accommodation and catering and entertainment all bounced back. But still, that number is nowhere near the levels we're used to seeing in China. Pre-COVID, we were looking at an average of around 8% year on year. But it certainly is good in terms of the optics of the consumption story. As you mentioned, pretty disappointing on the industrial output side of things. That only coming in up 3.1%. That was the slowest since March 2020. We do know this comes as manufacturers have been facing a number of challenges. Those supply chain bottlenecks, higher commodity prices, and also this global chip crunch fixed asset investment was also a bit of a miss there as well, just 7.3% higher. And that comes, of course, as we have seen these tight credit conditions, particularly in the property sector. We also saw some worrying trends when it came to unemployment. That came in up in total 4.9%. But when you look at the 16- to 24-year-olds, the youth unemployment, that was still in double digits, 14.6%. For a number of months, we've seen that in double digits. So youth unemployment, still a bit of a concerning trend uh, there. And uh, certainly that does does, uh, feed into the consumption narrative because, of course, if you have a job, you're more willing to spend money. But uh, certainly uh, this set of numbers today did uh, paint, paint, paint a fairly weak picture in terms of the Chinese economy and much more than the market was expecting there with that uh, miss on the Q3 GDP preprint when it came to the year-on-year numbers, but also when it comes to the quarter-on-quarter numbers, which are also important to look at because it does strip out any of those distortions. Guys, back to you in London.
0: Terrific roundup, Sam. Thank you so much. Much for that. Well, property stocks are mostly on a firmer footing today in Hong Kong after China's central bank said spillover effects from the Evergrande crisis are controllable. The PBOC added that individual financial institutions' exposure to the indebted property giant is not big. The real estate sector's impact on GDP has jumped in the past decade, exceeding that of other major economies. Chinese energy companies are reportedly negotiating with US exporters in a bid to guarantee a long-term supply of LNG or liquefied natural gas amid the recent energy crunch. This, according to Reuters, which says at least five companies are now engaged in conversation with American companies. Uh, Ginny Yan joins us, chief China economist of ICBC Standard Bank. Ginny, good morning to you and thanks for hanging on for us because I know you've been waiting a little while there. Let me start by asking you just to characterize what you think is happening here with the Chinese economy and whether there's any reason to be optimistic about a reacceleration coming into early 2022.
3: Well, first of all, I think what has been described here is a tr- structural transition towards that consumption-based economy, but not yet. Um, we're not seeing yet the services nor the consumption side of the economy or the demand side of the economy enough to offset the slowdown in traditional industrial heavy industry-based uh, uh, activities. That is what we're seeing and that is what markets are fearing, that transition will be fairly bumpy. and. And of course, um, layering on that um, corporate debt, I think most investors are hugely uh, worried about how policymakers will deal with the current troubles in corporate debt. Um, my view is that um certainly this will be a test for policymakers, just how quickly um the economy can recover all these new growth drivers. So I'm talking about manufacturing investments and uh, activity, I'm talking about higher end. Uh, technology-driven, innovation-driven goods. And of course, um, the emissions intensity reduction will actually be um, probably one of the indirect consequences that will be favourable, I think, to the sustainability of the economy. So I think overall, um, it will be very bumpy, certainly for the months ahead. But the structural transition is one that will always be painful. Just how this evolves and unravels uh, will be interesting, but certainly bringing more concerns for investors.
0: There is um, a a sort of whack-a-mole aspect to the debt management side of the economy and obviously what's going on with uh, credit growth reflecting the stance that the government has taken at this point, Um, weak credit growth data in September. But more fundamentally, surely, as Sam was pointing out here, there are some some deeper and more worrying trends like this high youth unemployment rate and this social phenomena of lying down that uh, suggests that a lot of young people are basically just giving up because they don't like the kind of jobs that are available to them. How persistent could this trend be And should we be concerned about that for the medium term?
3: Well, it's not my key worry for the moment. First of all, youth unemployment certainly is worrying, but I think it's a trend we're seeing overall globally, given uh, the uncertainties of economic growth. And I'm sure the IMF's uh, latest outlook has pointed towards that. But what's more concerning, particularly for China, is the demographic um, uh, challenges. So I'm talking about an aging population. That's why we've seen the third child policy coming out and obviously efforts being made to not only um, um, loosen up on that uh, restriction on on births, but also to actually encourage people uh, to to have children. So the uh, consumption constraint really is how much productivity can grow with the current population, the labor market given that the capital market growth and and other aspects of productivity growth is much, much more difficult to produce. Um, So I think that is the key worry for me. And also, we also need to notice here that for the first time – disposable income growth, so real disposable income growth, particularly in the rural economy, is outpacing headline GDP growth. And that hasn't happened for a very long time. So I think that's actually quite supportive for consumption. We already saw above consensus uh, retail sales this month. We'll probably continue to see that in quarter four, simply because we've had golden week. um, And obviously, um, because restrictions on travel means a lot of the consumption remains domestic in China, perhaps consumption will still be a highlight for the foreseeable future.
1: Uh, Ginny, I want to pick up on industrial production, a low single-digit number that has been posted. What happens next? Because we know we've had power outages. Uh, The Chinese government has uh, tried to resort to some of the dirtier fuels to to ramp up supply to the market short term. But we know longer term, they are still trying to hit some ESG goals. And it feels like there has been a real change in the power market where higher prices have been passed on to some consumers. Do you expect that to be a handbrake on industrial production for the rest of this year?
3: Um, perhaps not a handbrake, a sort of stop or halt to industrial production, but certainly the priority is not that industry or factories continue to produce, but actually consumers. So, households do not see any outages in power supply. So, absolutely, the policymakers were doing everything in their power to ensure that this current um, supply issue doesn't impact on consumers. Um, But um, I think, in terms of headline growth and industrial activity, uh, is concerned. As I said, the unintended consequence of all of this, of course, perhaps for the authorities, is that Beijing may uh, reach that uh, fourteenth five-year plan emissions target or carbon uh, intensity target quicker than expected. Um, So I don't think that the worry is that industrial activity is slowing too quickly. The worry is whether the power outages and supply issues or impact Impact on households, in turn impacting on consumption and other social indicators.
1: And Jenny, just finally, I want to ask you how out of step the PBOC may be with other central banks because uh, some of the early suggestions are that we'll see uh, the triple R reduced by 50 basis points in the first quarter of next year. If we think about that timing, the BOE is starting to sound anxious. The market is primed for some form of a rate hike maybe later this year, early next year. When it comes to the Fed, we know uh, there's a taper program lined up for later this year. Could the central banks in developed markets actually start to be normalising while the PBOC is still extending extra help to the economy?
3: that is certainly a risk. Um, as we saw, China's recovery um, was earlier than many of the developed markets. And of course, policymakers in China are answering to China's unique problems. So currently, inflation is certainly a theme, but only in uh, the PPI, as we've seen in the recent data, suggesting that core consumption um, you know, uh, prices are still remaining relatively stable. So this is a different set of issues, I think, to many developed markets. So China China's issue at the moment is, in fact, asset prices still remain relatively high. Um, but of course, um, I think given the central bank's warning that, you know, the, the priority still remains that uh, uh, a corporate and bank's balance sheets really need to tidy it up um, in order not to have a catastrophic implication for individual retail investors. That is their aim. And that's why perhaps some in the stock market we're seeing that property sectors aren't selling off as much, mainly because the leverage issue remains that offshore dollar uh, debt is the key issue, but individual domestic bondholders in in China are still remaining relatively upbeat uh, in in many levels. So I think for the central bank, the key concern remains whether the spillover effects will have an impact on individual retail investors and also, of course, any ongoing issues uh, in terms of, of credit Credit oversupply, in fact, as we saw a lot of that in the beginning of the year, will start to um, translate into inflation further down the line.
0: Just to wrap up then, very briefly, you don't see serious second round effects uh, for the broader economy from the Evergrande story or from some of the other uh, property companies that we're concerned about going into liquidation at this point?
3: Um, I think the authorities have met with some of the major developers to ensure that uh, the le- over-leveraged situation I- is not obviously the same for every single developer. So I think at the moment, it is manageable. And the secondary effects you're talking about, of course, the contagion effect in the rest of the financial markets, particularly uh, debt holders, domestic debt holders, um, perhaps securities companies, funds, etc., um, And of course, um, you know, investors have been worried about a contagion effect, the de-risking of, of China's uh, corporate uh, debt market for a very long time. Just how that evolves has always been questioned. At the moment, there is absolutely, I think, um, um, uh, uh, you know, huge challenges uh, lie ahead for policymakers. But I don't think that that secondary effect will be enough to Im- have implications for the wider economy. And that's why policy support for SME, so small and medium enterprise, for individuals